I'm Chip Hessenflow. And I'm Pam Bedore. And we're back again for our daily podcast. We are going through the memoirs of Sherlock Holmes, but we've read all 11 stories now. So this is our wrap-up episode where we get to discuss our favorite moments from these 11 short stories. We Did need you say to start... we're going to be rapping, Steve? Yes. Uh, MC Death is my new rap name as of this morning. (laughs) (laughs) We need to discuss some of these things. This has been so great getting together every morning to discuss Sherlock Holmes. And one of the questions that came up, I think it was yesterday. I don't even know what day it is anymore. But we talked about the idea of Sherlock Holmes as a brand. Is Sherlock Holmes a brand, Chip? Well, let's, let's, you know, you don't have to ask me. I'm not an expert on all this. Let's ask Harlan Ellison, a you know, science fiction writer, a pretty famous science fiction writer. And he says, yeah, he thinks that if you ask people around the world which fictional characters are out there that we would all recognize, he thinks there's five. He thinks there's Tarzan, Sherlock Holmes, Mickey Mouse, Robin Hood, and Superman. And so when we think about... Characters that have transcended time, that we're still talking about, that they still will make a movie about, or write a a novel about, these characters seem to keep popping up everywhere. Oh, I like that. And notice your five characters there. Who wrote those five characters? White men. Well, oh, I wasn't even thinking of the gender notion, Steve, but that's true too. Edgar Rice Burroughs did write some Tarzans, but very, very quickly, other people started writing them, right? Sure. This is very interesting that each of those characters has been written by many, many, many people. So it's a really good question uh, whether Sherlock is a brand. And I could see the arguments both ways. Because he is such a uh, recognizable character, as you've just said, but also was such an invitation to write fan fiction. So we have several different people who have written to the point that we have the Sherlock Holmes canon, which is the 60 stories by Doyle, and then the Sherlock Holmes fanon, all the other stuff. So in that sense, you could consider him a brand. In the sense of the 19th century in fiction, there were branded stories, which were in the dime novels or the penny dreadfuls, where you had characters who were from the beginning written by many, many different people. So like Nick Carter would be a great example of a branded detective who we don't necessarily know anymore today. Although there, there were about 200 Nick Carter stories written in the 70s, 1970s. But that's an example of a branded character who used a house name. So writers would all write under the same name, like Nancy Drew and the Hardy Boys or other examples. Sure of those branded characters who, oh, Nancy Drew, written by Carolyn Keene. Oh, well, there was no such person. There were a bunch of people writing under that name. Whereas Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was a real person and a real character in his own right, writing Sherlock Holmes. So yeah, the relationship between writer and character is super interesting when we think about branding. So I don't know. I could be convinced either way about whether Sherlock Holmes is a brand or not. Well, whenever we bring up this fan fiction stuff, 
Steve, I think we like to talk about our favorite, which was Twilight in the in the Sparkly Vampires. Would you like? I don't to know why you put "we" into this <laughs> sentence at all. This is all you think of as fan fiction. The only thing you know about fan fiction is that yes, Fifty Shades of Grey was originally Twilight fan fiction, and that's the only thing you know about fan fiction. Well, and not to take us off of the path of Sherlock Holmes. But isn't that the most fascinating example of fan fiction in that that novel, which as erotica has its problems, but either way, it actually suggests what the dynamic between Edward and Bella was in Stephanie Meyer's original, right? So by going all out into a BDSM reading of that relationship, Fifty Shades of Grey actually does the work of literary criticism, I would argue, in revealing the very problematic dynamic between Edward the vampire and Bella, the extremely innocent young girl, who's very hard to read, but um, but ends up and being- even harder to act, apparently, because, <laughs> oh my God, oh my God, that movie, line, <laughs> line. <laughs> Perhaps for very, very different reasons than Chip, I actually- love the example of Fifty Shades of Grey as super powerful and um, critically astute fan fiction on Twilight. So there you go. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) This is is great. I love the fact that we have such different perspectives. And and Pam, you bring (laughs) so much information to our show. This is the best week of too much scrolling ever thank you so much for (laughs) all of your insights and taking our silly little ideas and making them real i mean you you have real information thank you (laughs) unlike chip what are you saying oh i did not say that let the record show the the scholar from connecticut was the one who said that not me as if i had any self-esteem anyway i mean let's <laughs> They've said I'm full of myself, but I have no idea what that means. <laughs> Why am I Sherlock not Holmes. surprised? Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> Back to Sherlock Holmes now. <laughs> There's your transition. We've decided to say our favorite stories from this collection of 11 short stories, the memoirs of Sherlock Holmes. And I don't know about you two, but for me, this was a challenge. These stories, each one of them had something special. And I think that we see a growth in writing from Conan Doyle on this group of stories versus the original uh, adventures of Sherlock Holmes. I love that you say that, Steve, because I completely see that this group of stories has a lot of power. And certainly between my second choice was really, really hard. But I think I made it clear my first choice in this was so easy because I love the final problem. Just straight up. It's always been one of my favorite stories, short stories of all, and certainly my favorite Sherlock Holmes short story. And I love this because, of course, one of my big passions is the study of detective fiction. And this story really encapsulates something that comes from the original Poe stories, the uh, Dupin stories that Poe wrote in the 1840s, so fully 50 years before these. And in the purloined letter, Dupin has this arch nemesis, the Minister D, who has stolen a very, very, very important letter. It feels like a Holmes problems. Nobody dies. There's just a 
a letter that has been stolen that would be very problematic. And that Dupin story, the purloined letter, has led to the most amazing literary criticism. There's so many famous scholars have written about it. And in so many ways, the final problem is a really, really narratively powerful. This isn't a stolen letter. This is the death of Sherlock Holmes. But it pulls up that idea of the double, the Moriarty as a double for Holmes, the nemesis. It's just awesome. And so, and of course, I love endings, as you guys know. And this marks an ending that isn't really an ending, because as you know, we're only on story 23 of the 56 short stories. And so I just adore this. My, uh, my colleague, Patrick Russell, who's a PhD student at UConn, who I work with, I asked him, what's your favorite of this collection? And he also chose Final Problem. And he wrote, doubling and a great villain. Plus, I like that he died, even if he later undied. And I love main character death. Thank you, Steve, for making fun of my note, MC Death, which comes from fan fiction, where you're supposed to mark stories if you're going to kill a main character. I want to ask you guys, do you guys like main character death? I personally love it, but I'm not sure why. First of all, if you have a, a hero and uh, your hero has died, you're in love with maybe what, what this character has done. In many ways, it's become a trope to kill somebody off only to have them here later on. But at one time, I mean, the, <laughs> yes. the final death is the mm -hmm. final death. It, it, it creates a, a, a marker in, in the history. Uh, even if the story moves on, that character's death is, is, is important. For me, of course, I think of Doctor Who because that is a series marked with the death of the main character every couple of years. The main character dies. That actor leaves the part mm -hmm. never, almost never, to come back to play that part ever again. Well, don't never say never in, in any of these stories, right? <laughs> but right. he or she leaves us mm -hmm. and we feel that sense of loss. That person whom we have come to understand on a very personal level, they go away. This idea that Sherlock Holmes has died here is very personal to the readers. And we talked about this from the perspective of 130 years ago. They had no idea that he was going to come back and it took a very long time. But on the other hand, the use of this in comic book culture where the main character is killed off so frequently and they are always brought back, that is so frustrating to me on, a, on the <laughs> other end of that. We're starting to get a little bit of pushback on that. If you watch the 1917 film you know, that came out around Christmas time where the, the two gentlemen have a mission and it's a very short mission and um, there is death involved and there are consequences involved. I don't know how much I want to get into spoilers of that. If you haven't seen that, this is there was a fight back on this trope, the main character uh, passing and the story kind of going on. I completely take the point that sometimes it has so much power. But at the same time, when we think about Sherlock Holmes or lots of other main characters, think about the fact that people cry when Sherlock Holmes dies. There's something about that that's so amazing that people talk about it, people get distraught about it. Sherlock Holmes is a bunch of words on a page, right? There is no Sherlock Holmes, just a bunch of words on a page. So the fact 
that those squiggles, those typographic symbols can actually give people real, legitimate, genuine mm. emotional responses. That speaks to the power of literature. Absolutely. Power of the story. So, I mean, it's good stuff. Really good stuff. Well, let's, let's bring it beyond that. This is written for the masses. So this is a shared experience mm -hmm. with people who are wealthy, who are poor. Basically, someone who gets a copy of it that's able to read it. This becomes a shared experience. Steve, very similar to maybe how Darth Vader re reveals himself to be Luke's father. And all of a sudden, everybody spoilers, has spoilers. Chip, you have to say spoilers Wait, before Darth, you say Darth Vader like is that. Luke's father. Well, uh, <laughs> uh, well, I remember how much when I was a, a young kid. When I was, I think it was in elementary school, and we're having this conversation, and we're, we're we're going over and over and over again. I can only imagine what this must have meant yeah. to people in the 1890s when they get to this. And all of a sudden, between the dinner page, uh, dinner um, table, uh, to be over at the local men's club or the local uh, bar, or you know wherever they were, the, the the ladies' luncheon, whatever that thing was at that time, where a large group of people get together, you could immediately say, "Well, did you read this story? What do you think?" And everybody's got something to weigh in on it. So it becomes, you know, it's it's the power of reading. The um, the top ten novel mm -hmm. on the New York Times bestseller list. You have something that connects you to a whole group of people. I love that. Okay, so this had a huge impact. Uh, Doyle re was receiving letters uh, from people. I mean, basically, very yeah. emotional letters on this. It certainly was the big reveal, probably of, uh -huh. the, of this time. That's right. So I picked the best of the of the great short stories in this collection. What did you guys choose? Fine, you win. <laughs> I got here first. <laughs> I think I stated it when we were talking about a study in Scarlet. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> or Scarlet. I think it was. I think I mentioned it the first time. Oh, this is good, but it's not my favorite. That yeah. collection. Chip, what did you choose as your favorite of this collection? I picked the adventure of the Musgrave ritual mm. and uh, I did it for a, a number of reasons. One Doyle was kind of showing off a little bit because I'm a writer. Let me show you how much I, how well I can write. This was a story within a story. The Butler did it. Of course he did it uh, because <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's a trope now. And uh, yeah, Sherlock has attended college. There's a whole set of ridiculous clues that's left in this. Um, so he has to, um, you, know, you got to uh, decipher the set of clues to be able to get to where the treasure's uh, held. Of course, the, uh, there's, a, there's a dead butler there. And um, then you also have the you know, sense of royalty that's there. You know, King Charles, when he was escaping England, left this set of clues with, with a, a gentleman because one day he's going to come back and rule again. And it didn't quite work out. So I, I, I love this, that, that Doyle is... Certainly working with, you know, the standard story, the regular story. There's a treasure. They're going to have to do it. They're, they're going to have to solve it. But he's also saying, hey, listen, if I'm going to have to write this, I'm going to have some fun with it. And I'm just going to show you how skilled I am at, at, at my craft, my, my writing craft. And I, I really think that he did a, a fabulous job here. Yeah, I like that one a lot, too, for all those reasons. And also, what about the uh, the young maid? That was interesting too. 
Yeah, this was our Welsh character. Remember, we discussed <laughs> the, yes. the fiery habits of the Welsh women and how you don't want to cross one. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that is definitely a part of this trope. All right, Steve. Now that I've uh, I've released my favorite one, you're going to have to tell me what is your favorite one for this collection. Again, I had a real hard time choosing between these stories. There were some really strong parts of every single one of these, but I think the yellow face is my favorite tale here because there's so many great messages about how important family is. This is the story of a good man who really has a great relationship with his wife, and suddenly she has a a change in her, and he can't get her to express why she is doing things differently, why she is speaking differently. And so he goes to Sherlock Holmes desperate to find, to rekindle that relationship with his wife and finds out this, this terrible and at the same time, beautiful history of this woman was in Atlanta, Georgia, married to a black man in America, which was completely illegal. He died. She came back to England and started a new life. But she has a daughter who is now a part of the picture, has come to England, and and the woman is so happy to have this girl in her life. It's so important to have family, but at the same time, she still has this stigma of the legal issues involved in a cross-racial relationship. And actually, this was my husband's favorite because of exactly that issue, the complex representations of race. Because, of course, miscegenation, the marriage between black and white, is not illegal in England. And so we have, like, these representations of, like, what is what are the um, race relations in America? What do those look like from England? Um, what's the right way to deal with this? And I think Doyle has a very strong message here about the importance of family over any sort of um, racism, basically. <laughs> so so I, I really like the story a lot, too. And such a wonderful yeah. ending on that mm-hmm. one. So we're 30 years outside the American Civil War here. Yep. We're using Atlanta, Georgia, which is, you know, would eventually become the heart of the South as, as our backdrop. Uh, I'm sorry, as, as where she's from. And I think Doyle is talking to the American audience and obviously talking to the English audience too, about uh, how we should act, how, how a, a good person should, should act. And I also love, there, there's multiple times in the story where our husband, our, our gentleman, is given the opportunity to show that he's not a good person, but always chooses the right path. And at the end, you cannot help, but it kind of is a, a bow. It just wraps up where dad or the husband does the right thing. He says, well, welcome to our family. Yeah. And uh, who who doesn't love that? It's a beautiful ending for sure. And in the middle, there's so many creepy scenes. This (laughs) idea of this child with this yellow mask on staring at you from inside the window. It has a horror movie feel, that gothic feel that Pam loves, and all of these beautiful themes about family. This is totally set up for Jordan Peele to direct this. 100%. This would be a great Jordan Peele Twilight Zone episode. And also, Sherlock gets it wrong, right? Mm-hmm. True. One of the ones where Sherlock does not, is not able to solve this mystery because he doesn't look at it from a sociological perspective or a cultural perspective. Yep. 
I was right. That's my favorite. Yeah. <laughs> Let's go on. Let's go on. I like that. Pam, <laughs> what is your second favorite story of this collection of 11? So I also, so I struggle to pick a second favorite, but I ended up going with the Greek interpreter. And that's largely because I love Mycroft. I just think Mycroft is the greatest. I like that he creates the armchair detective. And I really love my favorite moment of this story is when Watson is watching the two brothers, realizing, whoa, I'm always so impressed with Holmes's ability to read a scene, and Mycroft is so much better at it. And so there's sort of reframes the way that Watson watches Holmes and therefore that we watch Holmes. It's so character driven. This is one of the things that I love the most about literature is when a good character is put together and we as the reader get to know this character. Mycroft is a fantastic character and we know him from basically the beginning. Watson is giving us all of the information to tell us who this man is and, and we're with him from the beginning. When he appears again in the next story, we go, oh, we know him. That's that guy. And we know almost everything about him. That's good writing. But we don't get to know him for like the first 20 stories. We don't even know Sherlock has a brother. So there's something really satisfying about this like surprise reveal. Hey, Sherlock has an older brother. Who's even smarter than he is? We didn't know he had an arch nemesis either. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) I love the ending of this story where there's this kind of nod at the woman's ability to deal with her own problem. Like, we don't know how the two men died, but it could have been the wronged woman who <laughs> her own situation. I kind of like that. Um, nothing specific, but just a suggestion. That works out really well. The fiery Greek character, as exactly. opposed to the fiery Welsh character. <laughs> this, right. there's, there's a lot of that in this, isn't there? Foreigners. Foreigners mean uh, fiery, Steve. That's, well, that's what we need to know. <laughs> that, that seems to be a part of the trope, isn't it? Chip, what is your second favorite story of these? Steve, I chose my my stories after everyone had chosen theirs. So I went ahead and did the adventure of the, the Silver Blaze about the racehorse. And of course, you know, this long-winded uh, travel out to the country to be able to, to solve this mystery and I, I use the Pepe Le Pew um, uh, part of this, too, where Pepe Le Pew, for those who are not familiar with the cartoon, uh, the cat somehow got a stripe down her back. And, of course, he chased her around the entire cartoon. Thinking that she's a skunk. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. And for this one, you know, no one can recognize this horse because you know, it's been painted over. <laughs> <laughs> because we only have the best of, uh, of detectives here. and. Uh, they haven't heard this horse running around or whatever but anyway holmes ends up reading the dirt he can figure it out there's just so much going on here and holmes figures this out i think pretty quickly he kind of knew what the answer was well and the horse did it right so this murder animal also brings us back to pose dupin stories where in the very first story it's the orangutan and so there's something kind of a bit of a callback to early detective fiction Animals are evil. That's what we should know. We should <laughs> no, take no, that. No, no, no. They're not so blamed. <laughs> oh, that's right. They can't be blamed. Like Godzilla. He's not actually he's not actually killing people because he's angry. <laughs> he's just looking for food. Uh, of course, Steve. Of course. I was thinking the same. <laughs> I love kaiju films. 
<laughs> How about you, Steve? What was your second? My second favorite is the Glorious Scott. This is oh, the yes. <laughs> epic action on a grand scale in that narrative convention of the frame story where we have Watson telling us a story that Holmes is telling us about a story. And there's so many quotation marks that it just, it, it's amazing to try to figure out who's talking in this, but it works really well to give us the adventure and the action without, you know, just being another story where Holmes and Watson go on a train and go and investigate. This has a grand scale of, you know, this could be an epic movie because it's outside of the realm of the rooms, but it's told in the rooms. I like that. Yeah, I like that. I'm going to go with you. This, this frame story just seems so interesting. It seems like it is an exercise in trying to create clarity on something that you know could easily just get mucked up. And he just does a really, really good job at doing that. And once again, just uh, he's being playful. I'm a writer. Let me show you what I can do. And there's a long, long tradition of frame stories, of course, in English literature. I'm going back to the Canterbury Tales. We've got a frame there that provides us with the tales as the pilgrims are heading on their pilgrimage. Shakespeare loves the frame in many, many, many of his plays. And so it's a great trope. I agree with you. That's a really, it's a fun one. So I asked a few friends and colleagues what their favorites were. And Chip, Dan Fuller, prof at Kent State University, he chose the same two as you. He said Silver Blaze, just because of that awesome trope of the dog who did nothing in the nighttime. And the Musgrave Ritual, who he said it seemed like his fraternity in college. And we do get a sense of Sherlock here as a college student and in the series also of Watson as a college student with his good friend Percy Phelps. And so there's something kind of fun about that. We'll give him the Golden Flash Award. <laughs> <laughs> is, that, is that fraternity? No, no. Kent State's the, the Flashes, Steve. Oh, <laughs> that's, that's sports then. <laughs> Every no. university has a mascot, Steve. And you, you know it. them for some reason. And every time you bring them up, I'm like, what are you talking about? Well, let's see if Sparty has anything she wants to add. Well, Etta Abrahams from Michigan State University. I love what she wrote to me. As a member of the Greek interpreters of East Lansing, Michigan since 1972, and that's Sherlock Holmes Science Society, and the first woman in the Greek interpreters, I should probably say that is my favorite. After all, Mycroft appears in it, and he is a member of the gentleman-only, of course, Diogenes Club. In truth, however, the choice for me is between the Musgrave Ritual and the Yellow Face. I just can't make up my mind. And then she goes on to say, thank you for doing this. We should all be reading Doyle again and again in these troubled times. Really appreciate that, Etta. So these are two stories that we've already talked about. Oh, how awesome. Yeah. Now, if we go to Doyle himself, he made a list of 12 he has three stories from this second collection on it. His number four is the final problem. And he says, we could hardly leave out the story, which deals with the only foe who ever really extended Holmes and which deceived the public and Watson into the erroneous inference of his death. I love how he says that. Oh, the public, so silly to 
obviously imagined that Sherlock died. I mean, he said it in the story. The, the picture, the picture says the death of Sherlock Holmes, and it pictures the the scuffle yes. and the the very iconic hat falling into the falls that nobody could possibly survive. I, I wonder why the silly public thought that. With well, the subtitle, "The Death of Sherlock Holmes," well, that was the title he, of the picture. Oh my god! Is is he sli sliding? Uh, the woman from the first story. Hmm. Yeah. Because I mean, isn't she is uh -huh. she's the female equal of of Sherlock Holmes? She bested him, right? I'm telling you. But there's a team up. More, there's yes, a superhero it, team up uh, uh -huh. in the future. Uh, now he picked number uh he picked the musgrave ritual as number 11 he said for its inclusion of a historical touch which gives it a little added distinction and a memory from holmes's early life and then he picked the rygate squires from number 12 in which on the whole holmes himself shows perhaps the most ingenuity so that's one that we didn't especially pause on now interestingly a few years later Doyle added seven more favorites. So it was funny. He started with a list of 12 favorites of the 56 stories. And then he added, he made it 19 favorites. And in that added group, uh, five of the seven that he added in spots 13 to 19 are actually from this collection. He added Silver Blaze, The Crooked Man, Greek Interpreter, Resident Patient, and Naval Treaty. So he did really like this collection, as I do. What is interesting to me, though, is that the first 12 we read, certainly he was getting the groove on. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm getting these things down. The second uh, 11 that we read, you know, he's he's growing so much as a writer. I, and I, I, I seem to keep coming back to that. But you could just see that, you know, he's sort of, he's mastered the character. He's mastered the sort of the story. And now he's going to try to make it interesting to him and make it a little more playful for him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like this collection a lot. I, I hope that our next story, The Hound of the Baskervilles, gives me as much joy. Oh, by the way, it does. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Is that foreshadowing, Steve? Yes. <laughs> so I wasn't getting a lot of responses to my question about Sherlock Holmes that we've been asking for uh, 24 days now. So I switched up the question on social media. I asked the question, is Sherlock Holmes a superhero? And I got quite a bit of response here. Sarah Elkins responded that she doesn't see him as a team player. He could lead his own Baker Street irregular style, but it depends on the incarnation that we're talking about with Sherlock Holmes. There's so many different versions of Sherlock Holmes 130 years later that maybe some of them are a little more superhero and a little less detective. What do you think about that, Pam? Totally agree with that. And in fact, that's true of all superheroes, right? That they do have various versions some of which are more heroic than others. So I definitely like that comment a lot. What about the team player part? Do you see Sherlock Holmes as not being good at working with others? I mean... Like the I, police? Well, of course. But, I mean, so he lives outside of the traditional justice system, which is very typical for a superhero. And he has a sidekick. I mean, the importance of Watson cannot be overstated. And many of the very best superheroes also have a sidekick. So I think that that not being a team player, but having a sidekick, that is evidence of his superhero-ness. And, and Watson is an accomplished person on his own. Mm -hmm. It's not like 
Holmes has taken on Watson to go, oh, come with me, oh, dear friend. You know, I'll comfort you through this entire adventure. No, Watson could take care of himself in, in so many ways. He may not be as a student at, at um, recognizing all the clues, but certainly he's, uh, he's, a, he's an adventurer from his past life. And a big part of the story. I think the story would be very different if this was a lone wolf detective. Uh, first of all, the narrator, the Watson narrator, is, a, is definitely a game changer for how we enjoy these stories. No doubt. I mean, Watson's super important for that reason, mm-hmm. as our, the reader's view into Holmes. Absolutely. Well, Kate Mack makes her opinion known, Steve. Yeah, she said, I feel like superhero implies a selfless motivation that Holmes lacks. Chip, do you see Holmes as selfish in his motivation? Well, I, I think that Holmes, multiple times, the the power of the puzzle, figuring out the mystery becomes a motivation. It's not selfish because certainly Holmes places a, a shingle out and says, listen, you can hire me. If you want to, and And he's not opposed to you, he's out to help people, right? Sure. And I don't think that's necessarily wrong. I mean, he's got a skill. In fact, one of the stories, I think it was one of the, the, the parents, um, uh, the father said, oh, you should do this for a living, basically planting the seed that you have a unique set of skills, um, like Liam Neeson does, (laughs) and, uh, he should use them. (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> Squire didn't say that, but yeah, okay. <laughs> no, that's, I mean, I'm really intrigued by Kate's comment. I mean, I wouldn't say that Holmes is selfless, but I think he's pretty committed to a notion of justice. But like he does say in the final problem that he's willing to die if he can take out Moriarty because of the massive criminal empire that Moriarty runs. At the same time, he often works outside the justice, right? And I mean, again, I think that's typical of superheroes. Maybe doesn't tie in perfectly with selfish yourself. Jonathan Stiltz said the Guy Ritchie films could be interpreted as showing Holmes's brain being so superior that time slows down from his perspective. That might make him a superhero. That is his power, Steve. The power of the brain, the mind power that he can perceive things that other people, normal, average humans can't. And I don't know if you guys have seen uh, the TV show Psych. Mm-hmm. I have not. I think I only well, watched the in... Twin Peaks episode, though. So go on. <laughs> oh, which was great. <laughs> but that is a show that is very much, it's, you know, owes a great deal to the Holmes-Watson relationship. I like that show a lot. The first several seasons were good. It perhaps went on a little longer than it needed to. But in that show, just as in the Guy Ritchie films, they actually do a little bit of a slow motion thing as you see the detective interpreting specific clues, noticing, you know, the speck of dirt on someone's shirt cuff or whatever. And so I do, I agree with that comment a lot that there's something almost supernatural about Holmes's ability to about Holmes's perceptive abilities. Now, Paul Lee, his comment kind of plays right into what we've been discussing. He says Holmes is a Hawkeye level superhero, which, which basically, if you think of the Avengers, the movie. <laughs> so Hawkeye has a, a super sharp uh, ability to use his hand-eye coordination. 
to hit a target with a bow and arrow or any type of projectile to be able to to reach uh, a target. So I, I think that there there's something there that Holmes is kind of a Batman. I mean, that would be the current version of or or some interpretations of Batman as the ultimate detective. And my childhood friend, Frankie Palmasano, said that we should read Gotham by Gaslight, the comic that came out in 1989. And therein, we have Batman in the Victorian era, right in the same era as uh, both Jack the Ripper and Sherlock Holmes. And we see him in that role that might straighten out some of our idea of Batman versus Sherlock Holmes as the world's greatest detective. Well, there we go. I'll have to check that out. I have not read that. Thank you to Frank. There is also a uh, movie version of that that came out in 2018 that Mm. sort of takes that story. But if you've watched any of the DC comic book cartoon movies, it's not exactly the same, but it's, it, it tells the story. David Fisher says, I think he could fit in with a team like the vice presidential action Rangers from Futurama trying, but failing to protect the timeline. Are you familiar with the vice presidential action Rangers, Pam? I'm not. That sounds awesome. I love anything with timelines. So that sounds like another, another great suggestion for me. You can imagine that the team of vice presidents <laughs> are not exactly the best characters to solve anything, but they come together <laughs> and they try to protect the timeline. Well, didn't, wasn't there a Saturday Night Live bit about the ex-presidents who get together those superheroes with Reagan and Bush and Jimmy Carter? I think there was. I love how you... <laughs> of course there's a Saturday Night Live reference for this. Our it's comics, a program I don't watch, Steve. <laughs> I, I, I am well aware, sir. <laughs> Our comics expert, Mark Brett, replied he thinks that Holmes meets the criteria of superhero. He lacks a lot of the trappings of the genre, like a secret identity, but otherwise, yeah, he could see how Sherlock Holmes is a superhero. Oh, Mark Brett is such a gifted writer. If you haven't read Dork 40, you should. And his expertise is always well appreciated. He doesn't have a secret identity, Sherlock Holmes, but he does do a lot with costumes and disguise. Mm-hmm. He's certainly a master of disguise that might lend itself to a secret identity sometimes. Definitely. Definitely. And our good friend Michael Albright from Down in Front, he gave us a great answer to this question. He said this is related to a conversation that he had recently. Batman is the crossover between superhero comics and what he's a adapted Grant Morrison's term costumed adventures to describe. Holmes is closer to the shadow, Zorro, and the Scarlet Pimpernel than he is to the likes of Superman and Captain America. How interesting is that? Think about those other era detectives and investigators, the shadow, not to mention the adventurers, Zorro, and the Scarlet Pimpernel. Now, I think from my conversations with Pam, we know that the Sherlock Holmes is pre-pulp, but eventually, you know, within 20 to 30 years from there, we're going to start moving to the pulp adventures. And that's exactly, I think, what Albright is is talking about. Zorro, the shadow, certainly pulp era writings. And it's I love that this whole conversation about whether or not Holmes is a superhero, it fits exactly in with the question of what is the appeal of Sherlock Holmes? Because one of the ways that Holmes appeals 
is in fact that he is that one of five recognizable characters, that he does have superhero characteristics, even though he might not be 100% contained within the superhero world. And so I like that. I think this fits absolutely into some of the reasons that we really love Sherlock Holmes, even 130 years later. Well, I'm going to take this in a, in a really kind of meandering way. Steve, if we went down to Disney and we went to, um, was it Hollywood Studios where the new Star Wars exhibit is? Um, don't they have a, a, a program where you sign up as a character and you are given a mission to accomplish while you're on the theme park? It's not open yet, but in the future, in the very near future, when we get out of this social distancing that we're in the middle of, yes, they are opening a hotel where you check into the hotel, you get your room key, you get your room assignment, and you get your character assignment. And you have a mission to complete in your stay in the hotel. There are other characters whom you have to meet to get information to complete your mission. This is live action role play, LARP, and I, I, they are going to have a lot of my money when they open that hotel. Well, imagine, you know, we all take a trip, Pam, you and I, we're heading off, we're going to go to London, we, we show up on Baker Street, and uh, all of a sudden you're assigned a role, and you have to go around London solving this. It seems like somebody like Sherlock Holmes lends itself to having, you know, one of us or all of us play that role that that you know solve that mystery and this comes back to the issue of fair play that we talked about before as well this notion of the stories inviting the readers to compete not with Holmes but with Watson as they look at these stories and try to figure out what the mysteries are and we are all failures we all have failed <laughs> When we come to Sherlock Holmes, <laughs> we got the ones we, best. We got the ones where Doyle gave us enough information that we exactly. Knew. <laughs> there, there were those college Jeopardy stories that were we we knew the answers and we felt good about ourselves. But yes, absolutely. But of course, the mystery writer is withholding some pertinent information so that we stick with the story. And boy, did we stick with these stories. This is a great collection of mysteries and puzzles. And what a great diversion from where we're at, stuck in our basements all day long with nothing to do. These puzzles work really well. I hope that everybody out there is working along with us, reading along with us. And I hope our discussion has been something that you look forward to each morning. Yeah, so it's been very special to me. Uh, I'm a person who has not read these. These are my first uh, go-through as far as these these stories are concerned, which for a group of people, to both of you have, this is at least one other time you've read these. It's been kind of special. Thanks for, for brightening my day. And for our listeners, I want to, I want to thank you for all the input that you're putting in. And I know that the, uh, the coronavirus is certainly a very trying time for us. And we wanted something that would allow you to, to escape at least for a half hour each day and kind of enjoy these stories with us. Yeah, and this has been so much fun for me. One thing that's been really a pleasure for me is that as we do the, the pod every morning, then I actually go and over dinner, I tell my kids the story. And it's become such a ritual. And they're funny. They don't want to read the originals even though they're perfectly old enough to, they want to hear my version of it. And so I make it funny. And we just have such a fun time going through these stories as a family. 
That's wonderful. That is, I hope that everybody out there is getting as much out of it as we are. This has been wonderful. We are going to continue. We're going to go on to The Hound of the Baskervilles, which is the next story that Conan Doyle wrote with Sherlock and Watson. And one of my favorites. I love The Hound of the Baskervilles, and I look forward to sharing that with everyone. We would love to hear from you. What's making you happy? Are you enjoying this? Are you going through a ritual and discussing these stories on your time while we're discussing them every morning? here we would love to hear from you follow our hashtag tms sherlock holmes for all of that feedback from around the world and uh tune in tomorrow chapter one we're doing a chapter a day so the way this was originally presented was you'd read a chapter a month for 15 months so we're going to read a chapter a day steve and then 15 months from now we'll be out of social distancing is that what you know well that's, <laughs> that's gonna the hopes we're gonna go daily we're gonna go daily 15 days we'll get through this book it's been wonderful i want to thank you again for listening to too much scrolling i'm steve foder i'm chip hessenflug and i'm pam bedor we'll see you in the future release the hounds <laughs> <laughs>